the Psalms, and this is Psalm 53. And these are the words of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? They are there. They are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Let us ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your word. And it is good to be so together with your people. We are all on level ground together as you judge us according to your word. There is none who gets a free pass. For you are holy and good. So let your word have its way with us here this morning, each one of us, in the preaching and in the hearing. Deal with us in our hearts by your spirit and do so according to your tender mercies. Feed your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you are well aware, there is a terrible problem with the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis in America. You hear it in the news. We see it on the streets of our cities these these days as well. It's estimated that 71,000 died from fentanyl overdose in the U.S. in 2021, and possibly over 100,000 in 2022, and everything looks like statistics will say that we will break that record easily in 23. Did you know that it only takes, the estimated lethal dose of fentanyl is about two milligrams. That's the weight of a common mosquito. That's how much fentanyl takes. And because what, what is put out on the street with so much other poisons, it often is much less than that. Fentanyl is a great problem, a very fatal problem. But there is a greater problem, a much greater problem, far worse in this nation and in the whole world. And as much as we care, as much as the world seems around us to care much about um, overdoses and death because of any of a number of poisons and, and things like that, we give a pass to the greatest problem, the world does, a pass to the greatest problem, a problem that is in every heart of every man, woman, and child, and without the only antidote, it is absolutely fatal. And it is absolutely eternally fatal. It is called original sin, or the doctrines in the doctrines of grace is referred to as total depravity. In James 2, it says, For whoever keeps shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. One of the things that James is making the point of is the fact that in God's perfect holiness, his law is not given to us. For instance, in a, a number of panels that you could break one, but all the rest stay fine. And then you can count them up at the end and see how many nice panels you still had that were not broken. But rather, one like one great plate glass window, if you break it at any one point, the entire window is broken. 
We break God's law in one particular point. The whole thing is broken. We're guilty of of breaking all of God's law, James wants us us to see. And so there's no one here, there's no one on this earth who is a greater sinner in that sense than anyone else. We're all, we have all taken an overdose. We're all born with this overdose. We are all made, we are all conceived with this great curse upon us. This psalm that we are, we are we're going to dive into here is almost a complete repeat of Psalm 14. Its message apparently important enough to be repeated by the psalmist and then again in the New Testament, Paul will use in the middle of Romans 3. Very important discussion on what, what is the state of man as Paul gives his um, defense for the gospel of grace. This is the doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity, um, in in the uh, five points of Calvinism, it's the T in tulip. Total depravity is probably not the best definition because oftentimes it sounds like what we're saying is that each person is as bad as they possibly could be, and that's not the point at all. It might better be called total inability, or as R.C. Sproul put it, radical corruption. He said instead of tulip, we should call it rulip. And, and, and the point is that total depravity is to teach that man's corruption is so pervasive, it's so pervasive, that there's no part or function that is not fatally corrupted by sin. There's no part of us, there's no part in our heart, in our soul, in our intentions, in our motivations that is not somehow corrupted such that that plate of glass gets broken. That, that, that there isn't anything we can do before God that can, we can lay before him, we can give before him, and he says, that's, that's good. Because God judges our hearts, our motivations, our intents at, in, intentions at everything. Lorraine Bettner, a great Reformed uh, theologian, wrote, ex- he explains that, the total, that total depravity teaches that since the fall of man, rests, since, the, since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that is that he is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. This doctrine of this absolute corruption or radical corruption, total depravity, has been debated and argued over the centuries in Christendom. Augustine took on Pelagius on just this issue. And the reformers fought the Roman Catholic Church and later the Arminians over the teachings of semi-Pelagianism. So Pelagius taught that man, an individual man, was not corrupted by anything that happened with Adam and Eve, but only corruption took place because of his environment, because of habits around him, because of uh, of things outside of him that might tempt him unto corruption. And semi-Pelagianism was was kind of taking a half step towards that we we are affected by the fact that we are connected to Adam and Eve, but we still have the ability on our own. We're enslaved by a sinful nature, um, but that we're not so enslaved that we can't still call upon God for salvation from our nature. And so uh, the, the reformers taught that sin has corrupted us um, and, and, and stood against the teaching that sin has corrupted us, but not so much that we are enslaved by a sinful nature, that we cannot freely choose to repent and turn to God, that we can't of ourselves find faith to cry out to God for salvation, that we can't in of ourselves follow the steps 
get a, get a booklet on, on the steps on how to be born again and then go through those steps. In, in and of ourselves, we won't do that because we don't want to do that because it's not our nature because we're fallen. That's the, the teachings of the doctrines of grace. This is the first of the five points of, of Calvinism. Calvin didn't write them. They came out after the remonstrance a, a, a hundred years later during um, where the canons of Dort were then, uh, were, were then laid down to, to go against this remonstrance. But, but nevertheless, these were the teachings that were in the Institutes. These were the teachings of, of the Reformation. And, and this, this point, this uh, point of total depravity, you might call the bad boy of the, fi- of the five points. No, it's, it's, it's just condemning us all. In fact, if, you don't underst- if, if we don't grasp this, if we don't believe this, we don't see this from Scripture, then the other points don't really make any sense. Um, and, and you can slip off of all the other points um, with regard to God's absolute and necessary sovereignty for our salvation. It's not just absolute sovereignty, it's necessary. If God doesn't grab you, if God doesn't turn from inside of your heart and your soul and mind, if he doesn't meet you and take care of you and, and take you out of your enslavement and your, and your depravity, your natural inclination to stand against God, to be like your parents in the garden, and to say, no, I will be my own God. I will determine for myself what is right and wrong. I will not be under the authority of a sovereign, not, not ultimately. Or, or if you live a life that says, I'll tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do deals with God. I'm going to do deals with him. I'm, we're going we're gonna to come to an agreement. We're going to compromise over these issues. And I'm going to show that I can be better than X, Y, or Z, somebody else, and earn my way of favor before him. That, that is a refusal to submit to the absolute and necessary sovereignty of God for our salvation. And that's what this psalm is all about. That's where this psalm begins, at least. But there's good news even in this psalm. There's good news in coming to the acknowledgement that I am unable to save myself. I am unable to, to merit God's favor towards me. How can that be good news? Well, the reason it becomes good news is because when God grants that kind of understanding, and it's only when God grants it, you're not going to come to, you're not going to, come to this decision, not deep down in your heart, you're not going to come down to this, this decision unless God grants it, unless he opens up your mind, your soul, to this truth. But when he does, what falls away, what falls away is what you knew never would work anyway. You knew it. There's, there's no way you are going to earn the favor of a holy, righteous, immortal, invisible God who created all things and who knows every intent of your heart and, and who judges awfully and completely according to his law. And there's no, there's no chance of escape. There's no chance of making excuse. There's no chance of justifying yourselves. And everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. There is that sense that, God, that, that, that you know you, you cannot stand before God and say, look, 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 basically, basically, you owe me, God. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. And so the glorious, so this is the, this, the ironic thing about the doctrine of total depravity is it, it frees you up <laughs> to say, you know what? I don't stand a chance. 
And the moment you see that is the moment your eyes are opened in faith to the antidote, to the only way out, to the only one who has a way out for us. And so in the midst of this terrible news about who we really are and, and grasping it comes this opportunity to truly relish the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of the gospel that was, that was um, freed up again in the time of the Reformation. This, this grand gift that we have, people, that comes some 500 plus years ago in the, in the works of Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, Bootser, so many others who brought about this great freedom in the gospel. They were not afraid of these texts, and so we should not as well. We should let them have their way with us, not allow us to slump back into a, a, um, a, a limp Christianity that doesn't, doesn't understand the hard edge of God's judgment and righteousness. And so, Psalm 53, the fool is said in his heart, there's no God. Is that, I mean, it just, it just defines our world, isn't it? There's no God. And if there was a God, if you want to play around like a God, he's not, he, he doesn't have anything to say or anything to do with um, the way we should set, set up a country or, uh, or a community uh, or an education system or define a family or anything. And, and the scripture says the person who says that, the person who lives like that, the people who live like that are fools. They're fools. And, and it says, the fool says in his heart, he fights hard against this pressure about the, the, the glory and righteousness of God that's all around him. Romans 1 says he sees, he knows that God's there, but he suppresses it with, his, with darkness, with his sin. He suppresses it, no, there's no God. And he comes to believe, self-deceive himself and say, this, this is what I believe. This is what I will live by. There is no God. And from that position... The lives of fools produce all kinds of grosser and grosser and grosser sins and corruptions. While they think that they are enlightened, we have been enlightened, we are told, because we have shaken off the, these shackles of religion, of, of the ancient ways, of, 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 of the ways of feeling guilty about things. We're, we, we can now, we're, we're free to do whatever we want, however we want, whatever we want. We're free to be good people in and of ourselves. This is what the Enlightenment taught and teaches. And so while they think they're enlightening, enlightened and progressing towards pro, uh, perfection, they think they're going up and up and up into higher levels of enlightenment, God looks down, verse 2. God looks down from heaven. And he has to look a very, very far way down to see where we are just as he did upon the self-righteous at Babel who thought that they could build a tower to heaven. And he can clearly see, it says, he can clearly see that there are none who understand their plight or seek after him. And God in his perfect omniscience does not make any mistakes. He looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, any who understand their plight, any who seek after God. And he says... There are none. Now we say, of course, many seek a God of sorts. We find seekers all over the place, right? People who are seeking after God, they're wondering, they're considering. But really, ultimately, their seeking is the kind of seeking that Adam and Eve did. 
sowing fig leaves to cover their nakedness, making excuses for their sin, and, and only trying to find a, a way of feeling better about themselves, um, a way of, of, of having some kind of assurance that they can make their way to heaven. You know, it really, it really is true. There is not another, there is not another religious group. There's not another uh, kind of religion that doesn't require your works for your salvation. That doesn't require that you figure out the way. You find the rungs of the ladder. You find the steps of the stairs and you go up them or you're not going to make it. Ours the free gift of salvation is the only religion that declares the free gospel of Jesus Christ. But it, de it declares the free gospel of Jesus Christ not to good people. It declares the free gospel of Jesus Christ to really, really bad people. Deep down in their core. You see, that in that sense, all of the other religions, every other way denies the fact of how bad we actually are. And, and, and when it denies the fact of how bad we actually are, it denies the greatness, the goodness, the glory of the freedom that is offered by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. That's, that's what's given to us. That's what's declared in this glorious gospel of our total depravity, of our deep corruption. And so the psalmist says, this is true for every one of them. Verse 3, every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. They've turned aside. They are, when it says here that they, um, they've, they've turned aside and they have together become corrupt. That word um, is, is used of, of things like rancid milk or food that has become so rotten and filthy as to stink horribly. That's what you smell like in the presence of God. That's what the humanity smells like in the presence of God. Not a single one in that state can do good. Not a single one wants to. You, get a, you open up a, a rancid carton of milk. You take a deep breath of it. And how many of you still use it to cook your sauce? No, you throw it away. And that's what God thinks of humanity. That's what he experiences of humanity. There's no one who does good. No, not one. <laughs> is that kind of like hyperbole or something, isn't it? I mean, I know lots of, I know lots of good things that unbelievers do, right? There's good deeds all over the place, right? What about all those good works that I see all kinds of unbelievers do? But see, God does not grade on a curve. Rather, he judges each heart, the activity and intentions of each action. And every son and daughter of Adam is corrupt in their inmost motivations. They do not love God with their hearts, and all their works are tainted by this. So there's nothing that they can do, and they do to the glory of God. So we are, we are to... We are created to be image bearers who grant, who, who, who give glory to God in everything that we do, in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts. And God judges all the way down into our hearts. And so we cannot and they cannot earn the favor of God in them. 
And they don't want to anyway. I mean, that's what, that is the nature of the fallen man. It's not only that he cannot please God, he doesn't want to please God. Not that God, not the God of, of all creation, not, not the God who sustains them, not the God who has knit everything together for his purposes and his glory. That, that is not a God they, that they want to um, give glory to in any way. For there to be no God means there is, though, no law then. There's no order. There's no restraint of lusts or passions. When we remove God, when we say there is no God, then what happens is there is no, there's, there's nothing absolute. There's nothing transcending us by which we must submit in terms of our, our, the, our laws, our orders, our ways of living among one, amongst one another. Spurgeon says, the, the fallen race of man left to its own energy has not produced a single lover of God or doer of holiness, nor will it ever do so. And this is the, this is the offense of the gospel. There is no flattery. There's no flattery in the gospel. There's no, we, you don't, we, we aren't going out and, and trying to um, win people by telling them, you know, it would be really great if you came and joined the kingdom of God. He could really use you. I really appreciate the gifts and talents and your personality, and, and it would just be really wonderful to have you come and be a part of our club. Now, unless you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, you have no value in the kingdom except to be used as, um, as, as instruments of his wrath to the glory of his name. That's what comes out of this. This was, as I said, this, this is actually Psalm 14 as well. Almost, uh, for the first four or five verses, it's exactly word for word. The difference, uh, in, and, then, and then repeated and used again by Paul in Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we should take a look at that together. Romans is, the book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus. It is his full and complete de de uh, declaration of the gospel. And especially as, a, as an apostle to the Gentiles, why the gospel is going out to all the Gentile world in his day. That's what he is dealing with. In Romans 1, um, he, he speaks about the fact that all Gentiles are under condemnation. All men, all men are under condemnation because they have rejected the clear revelation of God and his moral law, which is written on their hearts. And he says, even though the, the, they... they they knew God, they would, not, um, they, they would not give him glory, they would not acknowledge him, and they would not give thanks to him. Instead, they begin worshiping creatures, their own formations of God, their own formations of how they might live in this world. And, and, he, and he, if you read through Romans chapter 1, it's just this, um, it's just this descent into great darkness, into great evil, into great perversions. Chapter 2 is when Paul then turns to the Jew and says, now, I notice that you're kind of clapping over there and you're kind of nodding with me as though, yeah, those Gentiles are truly barbaric. The problem is with you Jews, he says, you were given the law. You were brought into covenant with God. You were his people. You were given his law and it was made clear to you and you break it in all kinds of ways. You're just as bad, if not worse, than the Gentiles, because you were given the, these promises, and you were given this, this freedom and, and, and being brought out and being God's people. You were called by him, 
And look what you've done with my law. So this we are better attitude that, that they had, he says, while well, having the law, it only revealed their own rebellion and sinfulness too. That's all the law does. The law does not save. All the law does is reveal how much we need a savior. All the law does is condemn us. And so then he gets to chapter three. And in chapter three, he then charges all men to, to have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's 3.23, Romans 3.23. But he gets there by by quoting many different passages from the Old Testament, including Psalm 53. He says in verse 9, picking up in verse 9, What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. (coughs) They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. That's from Psalm 53. He goes on, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. Poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That is Paul's inspired use. He's gathering together all of these psalms and other verses from the Old Testament to describe the state of man outside of the gospel. And so he charges all men to be under sin and says that every mouth is then stopped. So picking up again in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So the declaration of the law of God has this effect. It, can, it, it calls all of us guilty, all of us, without exception. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You can't earn your way to heaven. Do you hear that? You don't, don't try to be better so that you earn God's favor. You, you will never make it up those stairs. You will never make it up that hill. Do not try to be better in order to earn God's favor. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not good advice for how to live better. It's not good advice for how to have a better marriage. It's not good advice to, to, to how to um, be more moral or be more, um, you know, in line with the people around you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're lost. And you will never, never be able to attain merit and favor before God. You can't buy it. You can't bribe it. You can't trick God into it. There's not a chance. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be satisfied in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law gives you. The law gives you knowledge of sin. The law does not give you salvation. Okay, that's the first three verses and then laid out by Paul in Romans. Now back in Psalm 53... What, what, what he wants to go on and do is he says, um, well, we should notice that actually there are some who do good as he's talking about this in, in Psalm 53. For instance, how could a psalm writer, how could the psalm singer write an inspired text glorifying God that is put in his book if he wasn't good? 
right? He's, that's a good work. Psalm 53 is a good work, right? So there are some who do, do good, but that's because someone took an antidote. Someone got the antidote. Something happened to that person. So the, this is, it's not a contradiction. There is, there is an antidote for our problem. It just can't be found in ourselves. It is the true anti-Disney theology. The antidote is alien to us. You are not able to look deep into your heart and find yourself to, be the, good, to find the good inside there. You're not, and that's, that's what this world teaches you. It's, it's not just in Disney. It's, it's all around. Look deep in your heart and you'll find the good within you and you'll be able to bring that good out and transform yourself and be a better person. Well, you might be able to, you might be able to hurt people less. You, you might be able to do some less sinning. But when you do so, you'll then pat yourself on the back and you'll be full of pride. And God will judge that as well. The only antidote is something that has to come from outside of yourself. It has to come from someone else, somewhere else. For those who hate God, it must follow that they will then hate those people who, those who are his people and those who bear his image. And so the psalmist now turns not just to all humanity, but to those who then attack those who are in Christ or those who are in, in, God's, uh, in, in God's pleasure. They, are, they, are, they find themselves in the pleasure of God because of the anecdote. And he notes this. He says, Have the workers of iniquity no all that you eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great fear, or they, they have, a, they have this, this fearfulness of fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You put to them to shame because God has despised them. And so for those who hate God, they hate um, they, they hate one another, and especially those who bear his image, and they bear his image as faithful followers of him. And this is why there is such discord among all people, and particularly why unbelievers hate Christians. Romans 3, we read this, 3.15 through 17 again, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. That is... So it's not just hatred toward God, but it is hatred towards mankind generally. If anyone gets in my way, this, this nature that we have, if anyone gets in my way, I take them out. If anybody has something I want, I take them out. That's what our nature becomes as we have fallen. And you see this in, you see this in Genesis. Adam and Eve sin, fall away from God, they run from God, they hide from God. And they are told by God in that day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that day you shall surely die. And it was true they died. But they didn't die physically. But in that day, spiritually they are dead. Spiritually they were dead. And the children that they bore are dead. And the very next story we have of humanity is the story of Cain and Abel. And so the very next story, after, after standing against God, is a story of envy and hatred where there should be brotherly love, and then murder. See, that's where this goes. And that's where it has gone throughout the history of all mankind. A hatred against God, a, hatred, a refusal to submit to him, then bears this fruit. We hate one another. 
And we figure out how to gather together in all kinds of different groups, nations, ethnicities, uh, gangs, whatever. And we just figure out ways to fight and kill each other, to envy one another, to, to be prejudiced against one another. And all of this is because we, in and by our nature, hate God and hate God's people and hate, and hate his, the creation of those who are made in his image. And so in this state, the workers of iniquity have no knowledge. They, they, they cannot understand. They, they've lost all sense of conscience. And they will eventually kill and destroy any that get in their way. In our day, in our land, in, in our generation, the abortion mills are one of the terrible examples of those who have no conscience left. We eat up our people. Psalm 53 is talking about us. We eat up our people like bread. And our culture's growing intolerance of the Christian faith because of our rejection of what has been given to us through the Reformation, the Puritans, the establishment of a, of a country that was based on the understanding that we are depraved and so set up a government to protect us from ourselves and protect us from a tyrannical government. All of those things are falling away and they're falling away because we hate God. And we put rulers in place who hate God. And we bear the fruit of that then. So our growing intolerance of the Christian faith and virtues are going by the wayside because we have given ourselves over to this natural state that we have since the garden. Thomas Watson said, this is a Christ-hating and saint-eating world. And yet we live in a spiritual world, a world overseen by a great judge. And so that great judge makes sure that they cannot get rid of a sense of dread and fear especially as they see death or as they see death approaching them. As they see death all around them and they know that they too will one day die and be nothing but scattered bones themselves. They, there they are in great fear where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you and you have put them to shame because God has despised them. You know, we are one of the generations, we are one of the people groups who hide death like nobody else. We send off our old folks and put them in homes so that we don't have to see them. We make sure that people die away from homes, far away from us. We, 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 we don't want to watch death because we're afraid of death. You know, in the days and in, in, in the, in the lives of, of the Puritans in the time of the, uh, time of the Reformation, it was very common for relatives who were on their deathbed to die in their homes with their loved ones around them. And part of the reason that that could be done and there could still be um, faith in God and walking with God in the midst of his sovereignty was because of the doctrines of grace and no fear of death but rather an understanding of what, what, where death came from, who was victorious over death, and a, a great understanding that to be absent in the body was to be present with the Lord. And so it wasn't unusual at all for children to, to be around when their grandparents or their other relatives died. It wasn't unusual for people to be with their loved ones as they died. It wasn't unusual for people then to get up and wipe their tears from their eyes 
and say glory to God. Glory to God that my, this brother, this sister, this relative is now in your presence. But our culture, we don't know what to do with death. As far as a culture, we have no idea what to do with death. And we're afraid of it. And it shows in the way that we live. So this great judge gives us this fear. And it is one way by which he uses, that opportunity, uses it as an opportunity to bring his word and spirit to bear. Follow atheism, or today as they are known as the nuns, to its logical conclusion, and there really is nothing but dread and despair. Just a clock ticking. Just a clock ticking, and then it's over. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. And so verse 5, you have put them to shame because God has despised them. Verse 6. Verse 6 or Ephesians 2, but God. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the good news. There's no way out for any sinner on his own. Salvation cannot come by our decision or choice. You are locked in a prison cell. You do not have the key, and you cannot get the voice of anyone. By your voice, you cannot get the attention of anyone to get you out. Salvation cannot come by a decision or by a choice. It cannot be merited by any good works or penance or indulgence. As I said, you cannot buy, you cannot bribe, you cannot steal your way into heaven. The salvation of God's people can only come out of Zion from the Lord himself. That's the only place salvation comes from. And the testimony of this psalm, the whole prophecy of the Old Testament, is that he would and he has. The, the testimony of this psalm and the whole prophecy of all the Old Testament was this great surprise, and yet it was all there. It was all written in the Scriptures. Jesus, when he is, is risen from the dead, will come to his disciples. And Luke tells us in chapter 24, Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. It's right there on the page. The antidote was right before you. And it still is. And then it says, and he opened their understanding where there was no understanding. He opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written. And thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And the author of Hebrews writing to Jews who are, who are thinking uh, because of they're, they're, they are Jews who are following Christ now. So they're Christian Jews and they're under great pers persecution by the other Hebrews, by the other uh, Jews who are, who are not following the way. They're not following Jesus. And in this great persecution, they are tempted to deny Christ and go back to the temple and to the worship of the temple. And, and the Hebrews, in this, in, this, in this letter that is written, he begins, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So he's, he's crying out to, the, to these Jews. Don't you see everything that you believe, everything you're reading, everything you're singing? Jesus came and just put his amen to it. Jesus came and put his fulfillment. There is, <coughs> there is no reason today. Excuse me. <clears throat> there is no reason today to set aside the Old Testament as some preachers are trying to do. Some movements today, even in our, in our culture, are trying to do. <coughs> there is no reason to set aside the Old Testament. It all speaks of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to cough. <coughs> Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 3 again. <coughs> Tyler left one of these up here for me, didn't you? I know you did. <coughs> Same chapter, Romans chapter 3. Same chapter. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. You see that? What does that mean, justified freely? It's without cost. It's without merit. I got I have one. Thanks. It's without merit. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. You couldn't turn away God's wrath, but Jesus does. So God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's Paul's point. That's his conclusion to Romans 3. That's the good news. Psalm 50, 53 verse 6 is looking forward to just such an answer to our sin problem. The joy of our salvation and the promised victory of Christ to subdue, subdue all his enemies and bring salvation to nations gives us the ability and obligation to rejoice and be glad today. Look again at verse 6 of Psalm 53. This is not just a proclamation that you can be saved. This is a proclamation that the world is going to be saved. Listen to him. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And Paul takes that idea as well and says, Jew and Gentile alike can be saved through the, who, who is, through the one who has come out of Zion. And nations are going to flow to, to, this, to this mountain. 
So it's looking forward to this. And so it's, it's not just the joy of our salvation, but the promised victory of Christ to subdue all his enemies and bring salvation to the nation. This gives us the ability and the obligation to rejoice and be glad even today. And this means that every ethnic hatred, every war of envy and revenge, every crime against another, every, um, every unfaithful act in any covenant will be taken care of, resolved, reconciled, at the judgment seat of Christ. It will all be taken care of. And in, in the process of the preaching of the gospel, much of it, the, the vast majority of it, I think, is what, this gospel, is, is what the gospel is teaching us, is going to be taken care of in Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, before the great judgment day. So that in that great judgment day, Christ will say, Christ will say, come. It's, it's all paid for. Every wrong you ever did, every thought you ever had, every vile, putrid thing you ever thought or did or intended, all of your stinking pride, all of your terrible envy, all of your pettiness, all of your lust, all of your thieving, it's all, it was all taken care of. I have set aside all of God's wrath justly, justly, so that you might enter in. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And so here's the conclusion. Here's how it all works. Man, mankind, hates God. Hates God. And the hatred of God is, is brought out in the way that he lives. Robert Murray McShane, great preacher, said these words. He said, this is the secret desire of every unconverted bosom. If the breast of God were within the reach of men, it would be stabbed a million times in one moment. You have a heart that would kill God if you could. Do you doubt this? Does this sound a bit over the top? Well, I don't think so. Consider what happened when it became possible to kill God. When God took on human flesh and became Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ was not crucified by cannibals or pirates or orcs. He was crucified by the upstanding members of society, the leading theologians of his day, and the moral teachers of his day. But that crucifixion was Christ's victory and our deliverance. And each one of us must see this. Our eyes must be open. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came to save middle class, pretty good, upstanding, okay people. Why, why would he need to do that? If they're pretty good, middle class, upstanding people. He didn't come to kind of help you to the last few inches. He came because middle class, upstanding pretty good people stink in the nostrils of God. And they cannot take that stink away. And left to themselves, proven not only in, in, our, in Adam and Eve, but also in Herod and his people, in Pilate and his people, representing Jew and Gentile alike, killed God, crucified the Messiah. 
They represented us well as, just as well. Doug Wilson says, the only deliverance from this settled disposition is when God in his mercy strikes the blow that slays the dragon in every heart. That is what we call being crucified with Christ. And when that happens, we are born again. Paul, Paul is an upstanding Pharisee. He says in, in, in Philippians, he says, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day, kept all the law. I followed Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers. I was, I was as good as can be. And in Philippians 3, he says, and I count it all dung. It didn't get me anywhere near salvation. In Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul, the good upstanding Pharisee, yeah, he says, yeah, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus taught a parable, Tyler referred to it in the call to worship, a parable of two men who went up to the temple on Mount Zion to pray. One trusted in himself, his own good works, and was condemned by God. The other man was a notorious tax collector who humbly knelt, beat his breast, crying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we're told that that was the man who went home justified. The man who understood Psalm 53 went home, home justified. And you are tempted to see that and pray, God, thank, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee who prayed that Pharisaical prayer and didn't go home to, uh, justified. I thank you. You are tempted to do that. We are all tempted to try to stand on our laurels. But salvation is all by grace. We need to follow the tax collector who got down humbly before God. And the only thing he could pray was have mercy on me, a sinner. And the only reason he could pray that prayer, the only reason he could pray that prayer sincerely is because God had already done a work in his heart. When God does that work in your heart and you kneel humbly before him, you know this and know this with certainty. You're saved. You're saved by the full and complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is crucified, bearing all of your sin, all of it, so much that you didn't even know, bearing that very nature of who you are, killing it, crucifying that dragon, bearing it in the ground, and three days rising up, you with him covenantally, Without the sin, without the dragon, without the stain, without the stench. You are now right before God. And the smell, the aroma of his people is glorious to him. We lift up his praises like the incense in the old covenant. And he loves it. He loves to hear your praises. He sings over you with salvation and grace. You? Me? You're saying, are you kidding me? Yes, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus Christ and only what Jesus Christ has done. We are saved by grace and by grace alone through faith in the one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Holy God, your spirit is present with your word. And so take this word, this message, and fill the hearts and minds of those here. Convict by your law and bring to life by your gracious spirit. Humble us under your mighty and righteous hand that we might be lifted up in new life through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reformation and the straight up teaching of all your word. 
Use it to, to your glory and the salvation of the world. For Jesus' sake, amen.